Welcome to Activist HQ, the podcast series exploring the theory and practice of change. Today we're going to be exploring the life cycle of social movements through the lens of Jonathan Christensen's 2009 essay entitled Four Stages of Social Movements. In it, Christensen develops a framework for understanding these strange, magnificent creatures that dominate the landscape of change. Though his essay does not make any explicit comparisons to organisms, it certainly sets up an easy and interesting analogy. While simplifying runs the risk of castrating the nuance surrounding this topic, viewing social movements as organisms which must go through certain stages of development is a powerful heuristic model. But before we can build on his work, we must share it and discuss it and understand it. Now, a link to his paper can be found in the show notes, and we encourage you to read it for yourselves. There is simply no replacement for an author's original words. That being said, let's get to dissecting this paper. We start by examining the nature of a social movement. What is it? Christensen defines them as organized yet informal social entities that are engaged in extra-institutional conflict that is oriented towards a goal. This is an excellent start, but to really invest in a solid understanding, let's go ahead and ask a few questions to help us paint a picture. Who takes part in a social movement, and how and why are they doing so? One way to try and answer that first question, who takes part in it, is by asking what functional level do participants represent? Basically, is it an individual? Um, Are individuals interacting together, or is it organizations? And the truth is that both individuals and organizations can get involved in a social movement. This brings us to how they're getting involved, because perhaps this might shed light on the nature of a social movement. Are there specific actions that need to be taken in order to participate in the social movement? If we take the contemporary movements, such as Black Lives Matter, we might notice some patterns. Diversity statements, equality initiatives, and a flood of black squares surfacing in response to the then-latest high-profile police killings of black Americans. The impacts of these responses varied in their contribution to any significant structural change, but they were all done for a reason. This leads us to the third question. Why did they take these actions? By participating in a social movement, one is signaling to other stakeholders the connection that they share. There can be a variety of motivations for signaling, whether self-interested or public purpose driven, but ultimately what defines the social movement is that signaling. It is not a formal structure, but the informal structure created by every independent action taken by stakeholders. An emergent phenomenon, kind of like how a balanced meal is not balanced because of any one ingredient, but by the complementation of every ingredient in the mix. So we have a social movement, this emergent creature, and like any creature, it lives within an ecosystem, and that ecosystem is society. The Black Lives Matter movement competes with the Blue Lives Matter movement, and in a way their survival is predicated on the survival of the other. Before we can continue with this organism metaphor, though, let's get back into breaking down Christensen's paper. Christensen states that there are four fundamental life stages to social movements, emergence, coalescence, bureaucratization, and decline and each of these stages is characterized by a shift in the internal dynamics of the movement. Let's start with emergence. For the sake of this argument, we'll consider that all economic, environmental, and social issues are grouped together as social issues under the premise that even if an issue like climate change is an issue about our planet, that we are motivated by the impacts it'll have on the people living on it, and particularly within our communities. Emergence is when a social issue is perceived by individual stakeholders, Take, for example, the Zillennials who experience climate anxiety, the indigenous islanders facing rising sea levels in the South Pacific, or the migrants and refugees making their way along the eastern African seaboard in the middle of record-breaking monsoon seasons. 
Each of these stakeholders and stakeholder groups is experiencing a different symptom of the same underlying issue, which they identify as the unmitigated acceleration of climate change. At this point, the movement is but a baby caterpillar, a larva, freshly hatched. If it wants to survive, it's going to have to find some leaves, and it will find those leaves in the form of awareness efforts. Discussion emerges, news stories pop up, books are written, stories flood social media, humanitarian organizations provide relief, and GoFundMe campaigns go viral. Key stakeholders, agitators, raise awareness around the issue to help develop the sense of discontent among the general population who aren't facing the problem. During this period, this discontent ferments into the motivation for coalescence. Now, coalescence is the popular stage where action begins shaping up. The caterpillar is now a big, hefty guy having eaten all those leaves and is now preparing to metamorphize into a butterfly. It begins building its chrysalis where it will transform from a group of bereaved stakeholders to a collection of organized institutions. But first, it must pupate. This is when key figurehead stakeholders move the discussion away from general discontent with the symptoms to a targeted forum on cause and culpability. Response efforts transition from acute relief of symptoms to strategizing a coordinated response to address the root cause. With the increased social infrastructure, a greater pool of resources can be used and with greater efficiency and efficacy. Key images, icons, motifs, and other elements are identified to symbolize the movement and help establish a cohesive identity. Once that identity is galvanized, it is time for bureaucratization. Now, bureaucratization sounds boring and probably actually harmful to the movement. When you think of a social movement, you're not probably thinking of bureaucracy, you're probably thinking of passion and protest. But it is perhaps the most important stage. This is the butterfly stage, where the butterfly travels from flower to flower, pollinating our plants and contributing to the health of the overall ecosystem. This formalization is the integration of higher levels of organization, Coalition-based strategies leverage multidisciplinary action to address the issue, and as legitimate power is collected, structural changes are implemented, resulting in tangible systemic change. Organizations require trained staff at this point, and decentralized groups are just not capable of the widespread, organized efforts which these organizations are capable of accomplishing. Some of those budding organizations from the coalescence stage do evolve themselves into these power players, but that should not discredit the ones who do not because they do play an important role in maintaining the local level of integration between the movement and its stakeholders. Finally, this brings us to decline. Some butterflies live for 12 months. Others, like the monarch butterfly you probably recognize from your kindergarten classrooms, live only for a handful of weeks after emerging into the world. If a monarch lived to be two months old, we wouldn't say it failed as a butterfly. We would look at all the pollination work it did, and we would say it accomplished its mission. So too do social movements decline. Christensen posits five major ways in which a social movement can decline. Repression, co-optation, failure, success, and establishment within the mainstream. Now, repression occurs when authorities take action against a movement and can be both nonviolent or violent. It's important to note that typically the state will justify these actions, but the movement will define these actions as illegitimate. These actions do not need to be positive actions against the movement, but instead can be negative actions, such as by abstaining from providing necessary or crucial resources. Co-optation is when the center of gravity of the movement gets pushed off-center and causes it to come crashing down. This can occur when key figureheads are paid off by authorities or target groups and asked to redirect activities in exchange, like if the head of the human rights campaign was told of a much bigger issue elsewhere to focus on, even a legitimate one, 
and so drops focus from the current target to take aim elsewhere. Additionally, these leaders can be asked to join another organization, one which could provide additional resources. Now, this can be used as a tactic to stifle a movement, or it can be employed as a genuine means of support, but in the latter case, it runs the same risk of fracturing the movement. There are a variety of ways which a movement can outright fail. It can become too big, too fast, and not have the time to develop the proper social infrastructure. Thinking back to the butterfly analogy, this would be like if the pupil was trying to hurry things along too fast and breaks out of its chrysalis a day or two early. It manages to fly into the forest, but because it rushed, it didn't have the time to really develop its exoskeleton, its body, and it didn't store enough nutrients to make it strong and tough. So when it came time to visit a pretty little flower, it came crashing down onto it, breaking its wing and plunging to butterfly demise to be discovered by a hungry bird. This is known as organizational strain, and it's a big reason why change takes time. Movements can also fail at the organizational level. Factionalism is when friction within the movement grows as a result of differences in opinion between how the movement should move forward or what its goals should be seeking to achieve. This is associated with participants within the org disagreeing on the mission, usually as a result of alignment with outside organizations. This typically occurs when a particular organization grows too fast, bolstered by a focus on mass participation without a filter for the individuals it accepts within the org. This is also a malicious tactic used by competing organizations to claim additional social market share. Encapsulation is similar to factionalism, except that instead of the interest of outside parties being represented, it's a symptom of growing isolation within the org. Groups within the organization agree on the mission, but disagree on the strategy. Usually this is when a group becomes close-knit, and their habits and beliefs become more alike, and this happens as they also become more rigid. Eventually, their way of doing things is the only right way of doing things and the rest of the organization becomes rejected. New recruits cannot assimilate with the encapsulated factions, and so the faction departs. This can even lead to a rejection of the movement overall. Finally, this brings us to success. Our butterfly has lived a long, full life and is ready to lay its wings down one last time to rest. We already know what success looks like. The social movement accomplished its goals. So now let's take a moment to explore what factors lead to successful movements. Smaller localized movements with specific goals set themselves up for success. If you've heard of SMART goals, that is, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely ones, then you'll know that movements which are capable of codifying those objectives will be paving the path towards their celebration. Building on that, what happens when a movement, and particularly the organizations developed in response to the movement, succeed? They can either disassemble or be integrated into the mainstream, they can pivot, or they can as Christensen puts it, succeed themselves out of existence. Now, for this latter example, Christensen discusses an organization, the Students for a Democratic Society, which emerged as one of the largest youth-led groups in the 1960s formed around progressive interests. Despite earning that distinction, their perpetual shifting of the definitions for success led to a break in the cohesive identity of the organization, and while achievements were made, they were so loose and adrift as to glue the organization apart. Christensen points to the women's suffrage movement as a successful dissemblance or the integration into the mainstream and subsequent disbanding. By and large, the goals outlined by the movement were accomplished. Eventually, new goals would emerge relevant to the very same stakeholders, but it emerged as a new movement, not simply an extension of the prior one. This is to say that their goals and ideologies were adopted by the mainstream, and that therefore they no longer needed to rally around their cause. Another example would be the labor movement, which for many years was brutally repressed by authorities but is today well integrated into the political and economic landscape of the U.S. 
That being said, we may be witnessing a revival as the system decomposes into older issues, such as we may be seeing take place with Amazon and its workers' unions. Finally, pivoting. Christensen uses the March of the Dimes as an example of pivoting after success. In the 1930s, everyone knew what polio was. It was a household name which could instill fear in any family. The March of Dimes emerged as one of the inter-organizational institutions for fast-tracking the march towards a vaccine. Once the vaccination was found to be a success and polio was even taken off the back burner of society, the organization shifted its focus to generally addressing the issues of birth defects, premature births, and infant mortality. So now that we've explored Christensen's framework for understanding the life cycle of a social movement, let's adventure into this metaphorical organism. Setting aside single-celled life, for the biologically inclined of you, we will use the word organism to refer eukaryotic organisms. And if you don't understand what that means, don't worry, just wanted to anticipate some biology issues that might distract from the focus of what I'm trying to say. So, organisms are composed of cells. You're entirely made up of cells, and there are different types, each one going through its own life cycle inside of you and a part of you. Each cell type participates in the organism's overall health and well-being. Your red blood cells help transport oxygen to the various parts of your body. Your skin cells protect you from infections, and when you do get infected, your immune cells help fight off that infection. Some cells work together to accomplish a specific process together, and these groups of like cells working together to perform a particular function are called a tissue. Different types of skin cells work within different skin tissues to perform different functions. Your organs are made up of different tissues, from your heart, an Olympic stadium filled with the highest concentration of mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, in your body, your liver, made up of the only regenerative tissue that you own and that you should not take for granted, and your brain, made up of nervous tissue, which is responsible for coordinating a good amount of all of those processes. Your body only gets the nutrients that you eat, except for vitamin D, which it produces. But So the resources that get shared amongst each and every cell in your body are fixed. It's whatever you eat. Your brain does the best job it can at ensuring that all of those tissues get what they need, but it all depends on the collaboration of these individuals. Similarly, these strange creatures we call social movements rely on the collaboration of the different cells and tissues within their being. These cells are individuals like you and me. While individuals, we can perform some tasks and even some crucial life-giving tasks. We cannot accomplish all of the needs of the organism alone. It requires the coordination of its various tissues or organizations to survive. It needs eyes which can capture information, a brain which can coordinate a response, and a body to take action. The different roles which we play within the social movement are what allow it to do what we need it to do. We are its eyes, its ears, its nose, its mouth, its fingers, its hair, all of it. And while we do, as cells, individually perform certain functions, we also perform other functions within our role as part of a tissue. Now, competing social movements, such as the case with the Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter movements, have opposing goals. Regardless of personal opinion, both causes are legitimate movements, with tangible problems they seek to address. That being said, a legitimate movement is not necessarily an objectively just movement. And that's because there are no objective stakeholders. One group can say that the other movement is illegitimate, but that does not make the real experiences of those constituents of that movement any less real. That does not mean that you need to accept the narrative of the opposing movement either, but it does mean that you should consider what lengths the other movement may go to when its survival is on the line. This organismal framework is something we'll have to expand on in a future episode, but for now, appreciating the similarities between your own movements and a living creature can go a long way to figuring out how you can get involved 
what the movement needs, and similar issues. Additionally, you can use this framework to consider what other movements, even competing movements, need and strategize around disconnecting it from those key resources. For now, this has been Activist HQ, your weekly podcast exploring the theory and practice of change. Today we discussed Jonathan Christensen's paper, Four Stages of Social Movements, and built upon his work to develop a framework for seeing social movements as organisms, competing for resources and adapting to their changing environments.